It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ten years ago, I stood in Parliament House and delivered what would come to be known as the misogyny speech. I sat down with historian Mary Beard earlier this month at an event to mark the 10-year anniversary explore the legacy of the speech today and look at what's next in the fight for gender equality. In this episode, you'll hear that conversation recorded live from the event for the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. Well, it's great to be here and to see everybody here and to feel like we're part of the handbag hit squad. (laughs) I think that I have no admiration for Mrs Thatcher, except in one respect. She did manage to weaponise the handbag. (laughs) And for that, I shall always be grateful. We've seen a bit of the speech. And its immediate context was quite a complicated bit of not very edifying Australian politics. But when I look at it, I don't actually think about the immediate context. I mean, it looks to me like this was a moment when Julia Gillard got uncorked, in a way, if you know what I mean. It all came out. It was like a champagne bottle exploding. And you say in this book, very interestingly, that you felt up to that point that you'd a bit mishandled issues of sexism and gender and misogyny in the early part of being Prime Minister. I wonder if you can tell us how you fit that speech into that experience that you had. I did mishandle, with the benefit of hindsight, the issues around gender and sexism and my Prime Ministership. And what I underestimated was just how deep and long-lasting the gendered critiques and the misogyny surrounding it would be. I actually thought when I first became Prime Minister that there would be a huge reaction to me being the first woman, and a lot of that would be a very positive reaction, a sort of go-girl thing from women and girls and from many men, very delighted to see the first woman as Prime Minister. I also thought there would be a negative reaction, people who were discomforted by the prospect of that much change. But I thought just doing the job, and I think women right around the world have probably made this error themselves from time to time, I thought by just doing the job, hopefully just being seen to be good at it, uh, that all of that would fall away and I'd be judged on my work performance. And in the hothouse of Australian politics, that is never going to bring you accolades and kind words because we play our politics pretty rough, but it would be business as normal. What actually happened was the longer we governed, the more controversial things became, the worse the gendered critiques became. Mm. Trying to call out sexism was going to always get the retort 
that you're only doing this to distract from the government's political problems. You're only doing this because the government's in difficulties. So you never get to run the control test in politics, but I do wonder whether potentially things might have been different if in the early days of my Prime Ministership, when some gendered things happen, often much more benign than what was happening at the end, but even, you know, just the ridiculous focus on appearance and things like that, if I'd started the national conversation then, I, we might have been able to defang it a bit. Yeah. Because when you do speak, I mean... I've seen in the book your completely illegible notes for the speech, <laughs> yes, you know, which completely. maybe you could read them, but I couldn't read them. I could see mirror you know, <laughs> written. I thought, oh, right, that was planned. <laughs> um, but you look as if it is just all coming. In some ways, you've been waiting for this moment to tell these buggers, and that's what you go and do. It's quite interesting. When you read it, you think... Uh, seeing it again was very interesting. I look at the word offended, and I think, did you have to say she was offended? When I look at it on the video, that was spot on. You know, I am offended by you. Mm. Had you sort of practised that in your head for, you know, before, or what's your recollection yeah, of that? Yeah, uh, no, no practising in my head or anywhere else. I do think what gives the speech its power and immediacy is clearly, over time, my frustration about all of this was building. And because I'd not called it out early, because it was more difficult to call it out, because it would have looked odd having not said anything, not said anything, not said anything, to suddenly say something, people would say, well, why is she doing that now? There had really been no opportunity to talk it through. And I obviously used to think about it, but... Um, in some ways, I couldn't spend a whole lot of energy and time thinking about the gendered treatment of my prime ministership because being prime minister <laughs> is kind of a relentless job. You've got a fair yeah. bit to do. And you could see the abuse, and often it was in the periphery of my vision. It wasn't directly in front of me. Uh, but you just needed to get on and get on and get on, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. So I think there had been this sense of frustration welling up. And then the circumstances of that day where the opposition was going to try and play an attack about sexism against me. <laughs> you know, the, the galling nature oh, of that. I'd have uh, hit them, you know. Yeah, given, <laughs> given everything that had been happening, I think triggered this sort of, you know, yeah. cooling anger into something more fluid and really, really there. And when Tony Abbott gave me the opportunity to give a speech, I didn't miss it. <laughs> what is odd, though, is that... Some of the immediate reaction from the press gallery was not in your favour. We think, I, I, I've always thought of this speech as being, you know, eye-opener. Everybody must have instantly applauded, apart from Abbott. But the press were not initially very nice. No, not at all. In the video, the woman with the red hair and the blue jacket, Catherine Murphy, uh, she is a very noted Australian journalist and she has actually written a chapter for, for the book. And it's a very, very thoughtful dissection about why the Australian media missed it. And she, in some ways, says, well, you would expect the Australian media to look at the political circumstances of that day and to interpret it through the lens of Australian politics, which was about minority government being under attack, what was going to happen with the Speaker. You know, you could sort of see why that was their frame of reference. 
but she goes deeper than that and talks about how she and a number of other women were coming into political reporting at a time of change. She talks about being one of the ones that first took up social media, which meant that she was tweeting and blogging about what was happening in politics from early in the morning till 10.30 at night as the media tried to adapt itself to these new and more immediate rhythms of reporting. But she says she and other women had accepted that their standpoint when they were, they were doing all of that was supposed to be the neutral observer. That's what they'd been taught a journalist was. And to the extent that they ever reacted to things as a woman, seeing it as a woman and thinking about how a woman might feel if these things were said about her, they suppressed that because that was kind of not the neutral observer standpoint, so they thought it was wrong. And how one of the things that's happened since the misogyny speech is women journalists are now much more knowing about all of this and much more prepared to write visibly, demonstrably from the standpoint of being a woman about what they're seeing. So it initially, in the first hours, days, gets sort of written off as a rant? I mean, it got written, you know, the kindest would have said it was a powerful speech in difficult circumstances when the government was coming off the back foot. The more hard-hitting would have said rant, great net negative will cause Australian men to become angry and to vote against her. Uh, that terminology about the gender card, you know, playing the gender card, starting a gender war, all of that was littered through the newspaper reporting. And what really came and, and sort of fed into the Canberra Press Gallery wasn't any um, spontaneous reassessment about whether they'd got that right. It was that the speech was travelling overseas and overseas media were writing it up incredibly differently. And then because yeah. of social media, that was penetrating yeah. into the Australian media yeah. news yeah. cycle. And then yeah. the journos were like, oh, hang on. In New York and London yeah. and places like that, they're seeing something different here, so we've got to recalibrate. Yeah. yeah. And their first knee-jerk reaction, and it still is, I think, is when woman does powerful speech to say she's having a rant, she's shrieking. Only the other day I saw a headline in the newspaper about Jane Garvey, who'd said something perfectly reasonable on radio about equal pay. And the headline was Jane Garvey rants about equal pay. Right. You think, rants about equal pay? You know, this is a major contribution. It's not a rant, but part of the misogyny that you're contesting is the way that your interventions are described. Absolutely. And when I was in Australia recently and we were commemorating the 10-year anniversary of the speech the way we're doing now and we were using it as a platform to foster new conversations about misogyny, I appeared on stage in Melbourne and Sydney and with an incredible array of young women. But one of the young women, Georgie, spoke about being impossibly young when the speech was given. She was 12 or something like that. And she said what really impacted her was it was the first time that she'd seen a woman sitting comfortably in her anger because she had always been taught there's no space for the angry girl. If you're feeling angry, you know, choke it down, you know, whatever's happened, suck it up 
because it's your job to make the world a more pleasant place for others, not to be sitting there in your anger or demonstrating anger. And so she said that was the impact it had on her. I must admit, I'm now reflecting back on it through her eyes because I've never heard it described like that before. But I do think there's the sexist critique about how we see anger in men and women. I mean, no one likes anybody who is unfairly angry or really het up angry. But I think in politics, there's plenty of space given to the powerful, angry man who is seen to be righteously angry in a just cause, you know, putting forward his ideas and his beliefs, whereas we haven't created that space yet for women. It's a rant, it's shrill, it's hysterical. These are the words that flow. Well, I'm very, very reluctant to bring Mr Abbott back into the frame, but I'm so curious to know partly what you thought his reaction was and whether he's ever spoken to you about it. No, he's never uh, spoken to me about it. And I, That's a shame. Yeah, I got, I got um, asked some of these questions when I was in Australia and I joked that former Australian Prime Ministers don't sort of all go and hang out in the one cu- cubby house, you know, we're not, uh, we're not spending our days together, you know, with jam sandwiches, um, sitting in a cubby house. Oh, I, re- I remember your misogyny speech, yeah, Julia, oh, says Tony. Those, those were the days, weren't they? Um, we, we, we don't do that. So... Um, I mean, I've literally, I think this is true, I've literally only seen Tony Abbott once in the years since I left (laughs) politics. So obviously I I was in politics for longer post the misogyny speech, used to see him a lot. But I've only seen him once, which was immediately after I left politics. So in 2013, I said I wouldn't recontest the election. And I literally lived my life like a fugitive because I didn't want the Australian media to capture me anywhere while the election campaign was going on because they would have changed it into a thing. But I did sneak up to Canberra to um, have a thank you lunch with the public service heads that had served the government so well, so the equivalent of the permanent secretaries here. I was in the flight lounge, the Qantas flight lounge, and the Qantas woman, you know, she was sort of there and not there and a bit anxious and a bit (laughs) flustered. And then she came over and said, oh, we're really not supposed to say for security reasons, but um, Mr Abbott's about to join the lounge. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it was... It was kind of early in the morning, so I've got like a you know, cup of coffee and some fruit or something like that. He enters the lounge and literally, you know, all of these business people and frequent travellers and all, all the rest of it, you could have heard a pin drop. And, and everyone was like halfway to their mouth with a cup of tea, just about to bite that piece of toast. Uh, but they were, you know, frozen into immobility because they didn't know what was going to happen next. And I thought, oh, I can't just let this go on. So he hadn't seen me, but I walked up to him and said, oh, you know, Tony, how are you? And he was a bit startled and then then realised that it had caused this sort of frisson in the lounge and I was trying to diffuse it. And he, you know, sort of said um, something about he was uh, fine and, you know, he uh, wished me well in my future life. And then everybody, because we hadn't sort of boxed on, everybody was much more comfortable and got back to their tea and toast. Because looking at it, you obviously confess this. One does try to wonder what the narrative was from his side. And you see him collapse. You seem to see him go from sort of being a 
owning the chair to looking like a schoolboy who <laughs> wishes that he could run off. And I thought, you know, she's done it. She's actually punctured, only no doubt for a minute, but punctured that sense of entitlement. Yeah, he has subsequently said a bit, Susan Lay is currently the deputy leader of the opposition, and he's taken a comparable line to her, which is he thought in the circumstances of the day it was a grossly unfair speech, so unfair about him, but he's come to understand that it's, you know, means something for women who are still navigating a gendered world, so he's tried to straddle <laughs> that line. <laughs> well, you've come out ahead then, I think, if that's... <laughs> you know. I wonder when it was that you realised that it was going to be more than just a good speech? I knew fairly soon, but I certainly didn't... I didn't feel it immediately. So I sat down from the speech, and, and as you've pointed out with the body language, you know, you are relatively close to the opposition. You can read the body language, and the body language did change dramatically from very animated to very sort of, you know, inward-looking and, and back. And so I knew it was a powerful speech, but I'd given, you know, I would hope I would be able to say for myself, I'd given other powerful speeches in the parliament. So I knew it felt like that, but I didn't think it felt completely different to any of the other sort of bigger speeches I'd given in the Parliament. Wayne Swan, who you see sitting behind me, the Deputy Prime Minister, actually picked it much, much earlier than me and was referring to it as a je accuse uh, speech. <laughs> and I've joked, uh, Wayne's not the kind of person to wander around breaking into French for no reason. So um, that gave me a sense that there was something going on here. Catherine Murphy actually talks about watching it from the press gallery and watching Wayne Swan's face, and she still can't tell whether the emotion on his face was anxiety or admiration or flickers of both. I suspect flickers of both. So I didn't feel it then. By the time I walked back to my office after the debate had ended, uh, calls were coming in and emails were coming in, so I knew having a life in the world outside. But it was really in the days afterwards when it started to get so picked up by global media. And then shortly after, I went for an official visit to India as Prime Minister, and an Indian policewoman said to me, great speech. And, <laughs> and, you know, that for me was really the transition moment from thinking, this has been a media frisson, and I've seen many media frissons come and go across my political career, and I observe them coming and going now in politics. It's gone from being a media frisson to actually having some meaning in the community. Yeah. It's very hard to pin down its effects. I mean, you, you can see the effects on the kids, and you can see them doing it on TikTok. You can see this kind of sense of you know, having a, a brand logo, you know, look in the mirror, mate, you know. Do you think it's done more than that? In some ways, I'm not the best person to tell, but I, I think it was an early forerunner of the wave of social media 
feminist campaigning, which we're now far more used to, but we're not back then. Because social media is now so ubiquitous in our world, I mean, Elon Musk and everything else. In 2012, I mean, social media was actually still a pretty new thing. And it was certainly a pretty new thing to the rhythm of politics. And it would not have been true to say that most people were getting their political information from social media. I mean, all of that has very much multiplied since. So I think it was an early wave of feminism, social media, and people drawing from that into their own lives. And then the far, far more profound wave was the Me Too movement, where social media finally gave women a vehicle across the world to share experiences that they'd been too ashamed of, found too personal, too distressing, often to recount even to their closest family and friends. And then they had a way of sharing them, often with anonymity, if that was the protection they needed to come out and tell their stories. And I think we've built on that since. And now it's such a mode of engagement for these young women. And I did have the opportunity in the book to interview three fantastic young <laughs> women. And really they, they talk about that. And it's a version of feminism now which has shed, I think, a lot of the strictures we felt about being prepared to state our case, but always wanting to be taken seriously, conducting ourselves politely, all of those things. I think this newer generation of feminism is much more assertive, much more prepared to sort of call bullshit when they see bullshit and really press back on it and not that worried that people are then going to say angry girl, nasty girl, any of those things. They're, they're sort of over that critique and they're not that worried about it. Their reactions are tremendous. I mean, two of them, I think, say, I didn't know what misogyny was. I had to go and look it up, <laughs> right? And then it all falls into place. The speech or not the speech, if I were to put a very simple question, which is, are we in a better place now than we were 10 years ago? You know, women who want to make a due contribution, what do you reckon? I think this imagery of uh, history not being linear and sort of, you know, a few steps forward, a shimmy to the side, a half step back and then, you know, some more steps forward. I think that imagery is right and I think we've gone forward on some things but um, a little bit backwards on others. Of the things I certainly think we've gone forward on, the sophistication of the conversation we're having now about gender is night and day compared with when I was Prime Minister. I mean, the most fashionable critique of my Prime Ministership, even at the end of it, so even after all of this had happened, was that gender didn't play any role in my Prime Ministership. I mean, Australian commentators were routinely writing that. And that's why in my last speech as Prime Minister, I sort of put a spotlight on that by saying, gender doesn't explain everything about my Prime Ministership. It doesn't explain nothing. There are shades of grey to work through. Of course, shades of grey then came to mean a whole series of other things in the years. Uh, but who, who knew at the time? Um, 
I think we're having a much more sophisticated conversation. I think that much more sophisticated conversation is evidenced and full of research and the Global Institute for Women's Leadership is playing its part in that. Books like Not Now, Not Ever are playing their part in that. It's a far richer, deeper conversation. <coughs> and so I think because of that, Many organisations are doing very impactful things to try and drive change. If a woman is the subject of really misogynistic uh, critiques now in the public square, people flood into it and call it out for what it is. But I think there's some things we could be doing a lot better. You know, organisations of goodwill are in trying to do things for gender equality, but the evidence tells us many of the things they're trying to do actually won't drive things at a quick rate of change. So we've got to be more sophisticated using the kind of evidence that the Global Institute generates. And then the other side of people flooding the public square to protect women is the sort of seamy underside of social media with so much anonymity, with incels, you know, with misogyny moving off social media into the real world. And, you know, there are many women now, not just women politicians, but many women who become publicly recognisable, who deliberately downplay or curtail their careers because of the vile nature of social media and because it comes with things like, you know, a rape threat associated with a photo of their front door. So the person sending the message is basically saying, I could get you if I yeah. wanted to, or I could get your children yeah. if I wanted to. You know, we've seen what's just happened with Nancy Pelosi's husband. I mean, these things are real. Yeah. And so that, I think, is a truly worrying trend. Yeah. I keep bringing into this conversation people of whom I disapprove. I've done <laughs> Thatcher, Abbott, and I'm now going to bring in Liz Truss. Um, <laughs> um, because in some kind of way, she was in terms of media reporting. She was treated, and people used to go on about her terrible voice. I mean, OK, she was only with us 44 days, so they didn't have time to develop it. But it is quite hard for me. I mean, you're probably much more generous, Julia, but... I find it quite hard to say that this kind of sexism and misogyny hits people who are not on my side as well as hitting people on my side. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, when I've spoken to media organisations and some of them have asked me to speak to them about gender, you know, I've, uh, I've always said to reporters, well, I've famously in Australia said to reporters, uh, don't write crap, how hard can it be? Um, which uh, they didn't like all that much because apparently it is quite hard to not write crap. Um, but I've always said to them, you know, always do just you know, the other side. I mean, if you're writing about Liz Truss, do a global sort of search and replace and just put in Bill Baxter and then just Stupid. read it again mm. and ask Stupid. yourself yeah. if the Prime yeah. Minister's name was Bill Baxter, would I still have written it like yeah. that? Yeah. You know, would I still have uh, referred yeah. to what Bill Baxter was wearing? Bring, would yeah. I have I've put that same critique around his voice, yeah. Yeah. etc.? I think it's a good test. And I think, you know, if we try and do that test with the, the Liz Truss Prime Ministership, there is no doubt any Prime Minister who delivered an economic plan like that, which caused such instability in global markets, plunging pound, you know, Bank of England, bond markets, all the rest of it, loses their Chancellor very quickly. <laughs> you know, they would have been in profound political troubles, no doubt about that. 
But that doesn't mean that some of the things along the way weren't gendered. And I think you've picked out some of them. One that, that I'm still thinking about, but when she did need to put Jeremy Hunt in as Chancellor under acute political pressure, all yeah. of the reporting then yeah. was Jeremy Hunt is basically now the Prime Minister. Yeah. She's become chair of the board and yeah. he's now the CEO. Yeah. And you're like, well, would they have really written quite like that if it was two men? And is, in fact, that analogy a very good analogy, given, you know, boards get rid of CEOs and that kind of stuff? I, I think there was a bit of gender in that yeah. too. Yeah. If somebody came up to you, female, and said, I'm really wondering about whether I should go into politics, <laughs> how would you persuade them to do it? Oh, I, uh, <laughs> I would absolutely persuade them to do it because in conversations like this where, and, you know, books like Not Now, Not Ever, we're obviously focusing on the barriers that yeah. still remain, so the structural barriers, the stereotypes, the things that hold women back, and we've got to focus on those because we're never going to sweep them out the way through silence. We're only ever going to sweep them out the way if we name them, hold them up to the light, categorise them, work out what knocks them over uh, the best. But there is a whole other side of politics and the other side is you do get to do big things and put your values into action and to make a very big difference to the world. So one of the things that happened for me, even around the 10-year anniversary of the misogyny speech, is a young girl I met, Sophie, who has a profound disability. I met her when, she, when I was campaigning for the creation of the National Disability Insurance Scheme in Australia, which we got to enact, and it's operating today to support Australians with disabilities. And Sophie was able to give her critique of my Prime Ministership, her critique of the misogyny speech, but also her critique of the difference the National Disability Insurance Scheme's made to her life. And if you get to do things like that, then they're the things that really endure and matter, and politics gives you that. Now good, good it's recommendation. Good recommendation. <laughs> yeah. uh, now it's my turn. Mary yes. generously wrote a chapter for the book, which is from her perspective on misogyny. So Mary, let's start at the very beginning. What date? You can you can do it to the nearest year if you need to. What date did misogyny start? Uh, <laughs> with the dinosaurs, Julia. With the dinosaurs. dinosaurs. But in terms of evidence for it, I right. mean, it's been, it's been here forever, but in terms of actual evidence, the first case in Western literature, and I think I could probably do it more widely, but is in the Odyssey by Homer, composed in the 8th century BC, second work of literature in the West. So as far back as you can go, and it's a very simple scene. Odysseus, the hero, coming back home from the Trojan War. He's actually... T taking a bit of time about it. Taking a bit of time about it, meeting <laughs> nymphs and staying eight years, having a nice time, and shipwrecks en route. Right. Meanwhile, at home, wife Penelope is looking off to the show and bringing up their son, Telemachus, who is basically a wet-behind-the-ears teenager. One day, Penelope comes downstairs and finds the people in the house having a party and... The bard is singing a song about what a terrible time all the heroes 
of Greece are having getting back from the Trojan War. She perfectly reasonably says, do you think we could change the track, really? You know, <laughs> could we, perhaps you could sing something a bit more cheerful, right? Absolutely reasonable. Telemachus comes over and says, Mum, speech is man's business. Go upstairs. And this clever, savvy, middle-aged woman goes upstairs. Now, there's two things that strike me about that, apart from it's just obvious, familiar. You know, how many times have we been told to shut up and go upstairs? Very often. First, I think, it's not just that Telemachus says that. It's the story of this poem is about how Telemachus grows up. And this is a major incident in Telemachus growing up. If you're a man, in order to grow up, you have to learn to shut women up. Mm. So shutting women up is about the maturation of the male. He's not just being nasty. He's doing what he should. Fast forward two and a half thousand years, and this fits, I think, very much with what you're saying about calling things out. I'd read the Odyssey for about 20 or 30 years on and off, and I'd taught the Odyssey. And it was only really about 15, 20 years ago that I was reading this book again. And I thought, bloody hell. Mm. I'd read this and I'd not seen it. You know, I think when you say, look, what is really important is we need to learn, you have to learn to recognise it and to say, hang on, everybody, look at this. And for me, that, that kind of Telemachus Penelope moment is important, not only because it's the first surviving incident of misogyny that you can actually track in the West, it also is a constant reminder to me of how I just didn't notice. Mm. I did not notice, you know, and that is a small kind of metaphor for all the times that we don't notice. Is another thing that we don't notice the sort of embedded cultural narratives about women and evil. So uh, Helena Kennedy, for example, has written Eve Was Framed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At, at we, we in Australia start events with a welcome to country from an Indigenous elder and the uh, lovely Indigenous elder who would frequently do welcomes to country in the Australian Parliament House would always say, uh, if Adam and Eve had been Indigenous Australians, they would have killed and eaten the snakes. So human history would have been entirely different. <laughs> uh, so I, I'll leave that with you, something to think about. But of course there's, you know, Pandora's box, you know, it's her part, her fault for letting uh, evils out into the world. Yeah. Do you think we underestimate that or I'm not a classicist bootleg, so please uh, correct <laughs> no, me when I go wrong. <laughs> I mean, uh, there's a whole kind of concatenation of things, which is that women in power means bad. One of the ways of expressing that is to express it through, it's, you know, it's ditch the witch or the bitch, you know, any itch, you know, anything ending in itch is what women are and it's bad. And 50 years ago, I suppose, people did look at some of these stories, feminists look at these stories of women taking power in ancient Greek mythology. They, I think, totally understandably, but utterly wrongly, started to say, well, look, actually, what this is showing us you know, forget Beard saying that misogyny goes back to the dinosaurs. Once upon a time, before we can ever quite see, there was a moment when women did have power. And what has happened 
is they've been removed from it. The more you look at all these stories of powerful women in Greek mythology or any early mythology, frankly, the more you look at them, the more you discover that women only are imagined to take power in order that the story can say they really fucked up, right? <laughs> you know, they kill their husband, you know, things go, you know, terribly wrong. You know, the kind of Liz Truss, the Liz Truss narrative, I'm afraid, is frequently found in Greek myth. So everything you see around you is confirmatory of the idea that women can't hack it, whether it's because they lead men astray, whether it's the power of the seductress, the power of the enchanter, the power of the poisoner. You know, why are all these powerful women in the Roman Empire, like you know, Livia in Robert Graves' I, Claudius, you know, why are they said to be poisoners? Because you can never trust a woman. We're so surrounded with that that we don't notice it. We just, I think, don't notice it. And I think, oh God, I'm going to mention another person of whom I disapprove a bit. Um, we read the stories about what went on in Boris Johnson's number 10 and what Carrie did. And all over again, it's Carrie chose the expensive wallpaper. Carrie was wanting this. You could say the same for Hillary Clinton with Bill. You could say the same for Cherie Blair with Tony, that everywhere we look, we find the ill deeds, in some sense, of a woman being a fantastic explanatory device and actually letting the men off the hook. I've had a fantastic image then of a classicist in 2,000 years' time telling this ancient story of a woman in power and a lettuce. Um, <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes. <laughs> it's going to it's make a wonderful to, myth, isn't it? It is uh, going to be absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. But I think, however, there is one of the things we might sometimes do, though, is flip this on its head. Because I think one of the ways to think about that kind of misogynistic culture is to say, you can't escape it. You know, you go to an art gallery, you know, and it's, you know, some woman enticing some poor old bloke to his death in a murky pool or whatever, right, <laughs> you know? And because we're acculturated, because we live in this culture, that's what we've come to expect. Possibly we might flip that and say, Look, one of the reasons that there's all this rhetoric and discourse and image making around misogyny is because it's such a feeble ideology. Why do we have to tell ourselves so many stories about women being seductresses, temptresses, whatever? We have, it's culture trying to make a lie seem true. Mm. I, I kind of sometimes cheer myself up by saying, the extraordinary noise that misogyny makes, you know, whether it's red pill communities or complete idiots on social media or whatever, the noise shows you how feeble it is. And if we could be more confident that they all, the boys all know it's fragile, really, I think we might be able to prize it apart a bit more. OK, they've had... 3,000 plus years of practice. So I, and I, so I don't imagine I'm going to see it, but I was talking about it at, a, at another event a few weeks ago. And you know, I think actually,
actually, there are ways that we, we may inroads to this, show misogyny up all the time if we could just be a bit more confident about it. I told the story about my mum. When I was in my teens, we used to live opposite a pub and it was a very old-fashioned English pub and there was a bar and there was a big notice hanging up at the bar saying men only because the women had to go and drink in the snug. My mum was quite a toughie. She went and she used to drink her drink standing directly under the notice that said men only. And she got quite a bit of flack, as you can imagine. Except one day she went into the pub and the notice wasn't there anymore. Oh, that's fantastic. So instead of microaggressions, we've got to have, you know, the... Microfightbacks. <laughs> Microfightbacks. You're someone who's, you know, obviously in the public eye, you've done uh, so many outwards-facing activities for uh, a classicist. Not every classicist is routinely on TV and books and, and all the rest of it. And, I mean, that has brought you all sorts of critiques. I mean, famously told Too Ugly for Television, yes. I think was A.A. Yes. Gill, bless him. Yes, A.A. Gill. <laughs> and, you know, you've seen more than your... Well, I was going to say more than your fair share, but fair share is not the right <laughs> terminology. Far too much negativity on social media. As a classicist, how do you look at that? Do you actually read these, you know, badly spelt tweets and say to yourself, oh, I can connect that with a view of misogyny from several thousand years ago? How do you think about that? I do sometimes think that because the tropes are the same. Right. You know? And, you, you know, you start out thinking they're going for me because of something I've said. They're really going for you because you're saying anything. The aggression comes to a woman speaking, not actually to what she says very much. Mm. I sort of turned the corner with this. I mean, it, it's still very... You, you pick up your phone and you find someone saying, you know, you stupid, you know, whatever, or I'm going to come and rape you or whatever. And, it, it, you know, and anybody who says, I don't mind about that, is not telling you the truth. But I felt a lot better when I started to answer back. You know, because... You know, I was told at the beginning of all this, absolute rule, social media, block them, don't reply, don't give them the oxygen of publicity, just move on, block and move. I'm sure there are people for whom that works and I think you have to find your own way of dealing with it. You can't really give anybody advice. But I kind of thought, if I went into a pub, sorry, another pub, and I, and I you know, came across the men in the back room, putting them in the back room now, and they were saying, gosh, she's an absolute... You know, just imagine what her, whatever. Would I kind of just leave? No, I'd say, excuse me, you know, you're talking about me here. I don't think that's quite fair. It's taken me a jolly long time to learn this. But I now, if somebody directly attacks me, I reply. And I have only one rule, which is I don't get cross. If I think I'm getting cross, I... Put the phone away. But it's been really helpful. It's been helpful in two ways. One is, you know, I felt in the past, by just kind of moving on, it was like kind of leaving the bullies in charge of the playground, mm. really. Twitter is supposed to be a place where we can all play, but as soon as anybody's nasty, they get left on the medium and I get thrown off. But also, in a kind of terms of human interaction, uh, there are some people out there who are extremely nasty, who really are hardcore misogynists. 
no doubt about that. There's also quite a lot of people, men I think, but not only, who are a bit sad, a bit desperate, a bit feeling lonely, probably had a bit too much to drink. And now, one of the ways that desperation comes out, and this is a worry, is in misogynistic chat. That's what it gets channeled into. But quite often, often enough for it to be worthwhile, you'll say, excuse me, I didn't quite say that. And they will tweet back and say, no, I'm terribly sorry, you didn't. I was feeling a bit down. Yeah. Um, I had a wonderful one from a guy who was doing something. I can't remember now what it was. And he said, God, I never thought you'd reply. Actually, I'm really keen on history. I'm a retired... <laughs> I'm a retired policeman and I've just had a heart bypass operation. This was more than we needed to know, wasn't it? Um, and and we, we, meet, we, we meet every week in Glasgow. So if you're ever in Glasgow and would like to come and have a drink, and this took several tweets, as you can understand, please do. And I thought, there was a man who just nobody had noticed. You know, I'm afraid. And he was getting over his operation and he was really keen on history. And if you getting back to him was positively good thing to do. You're, oh. you're a nicer woman than I am. <laughs> That's for sure. I think you were pretty nice to Tony Abbott. <laughs> Perhaps I could ask you to thank the remarkable Mary Beale. Oh, and by the way. <laughs> Thank you for joining us here tonight. Thank you very much. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the institutes, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Rebecca Shepherd and Connie Blafari, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at... Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. G-I-W-L at kcl.ac.uk to stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash GIWL and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at GIWLKings. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us next time.